With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot. Thanks for joining us today. This episode is the first of a two-part series focused on a panel discussion that happened during the 2021 Civil Affairs Roundtable. Hosted by retired Brigadier General Chris Stockel, this panel is focused on the role of civil affairs in regional competition for influence. Enjoy the show. Narratives involve unspoken identities, meaning, and purpose. Uh, they are best understood by listening. Something civil affairs professionals are, in my opinion, the best at in the world, better, in my opinion, than any corporate negotiator, something joint planners and commanders can learn from. So uh, just to kind of frame in uh, the objective for today, uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists, uh, frame the issues in as you kind of just did, and then we'll do some Q&A. Look, uh, uh, Lieutenant General, um, retired Eric Wesley uh, spoke this morning. And look, we have a couple options in front of us, right? Uh, as we go down the MDO route, as uh, civil affairs, we uh, prepare to support the geographic combatant commanders. And I say the service component commanders, because it's just not the army service component commander. Uh, at Indo-PACOM, uh, just before I retired in the summer of 2019, uh, the Navy was a big, big customer of ours. And also we had some pretty good partnerships with um, Special Operations Command Pacific. A lot of funding issues, uh, as General Brooks highlighted in the uh, late fall of last year, getting reservists on active duty is definitely a challenge. So uh, we're not going to solve that during this particular panel, but we're going to frame in some, what are the appropriate roles of CA in phase zero? Um, how do we support our customers? Uh, if anyone on the panel has insights, some are whispering in the GCC and service component commanders, um, but what would you highlight for the audience here? And I'll just uh, put what the, uh, Eric Wesley said uh, this morning, you know, we have two options. We can just do nothing except the status quo, or we can invest in a major mobilization for change, and we can shape that calculus right now in phase zero. So without uh, any further ado and a brief introduction, so we have Dr. Howard um, Clark. He's an associate professor of influence strategies and psychological warfare. Uh, College of Information and Cyberspace at uh, NDU, National Defense University. David DeRoche is the Associate Professor, Near East uh, South Asia Center for Strategic Studies, also at the National Defense University. Colonel retired Dan Hampton is the Chief of Staff at the Africa Center for Studies, also at uh, NDU. So without further ado, We'll go down the line of introduction. So, uh, Dr. Howard Clark, over to you for some time here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I come here with an agenda, and, and I'm biased. Uh, and that is my job at NDU is to educate our future generals and admirals and their civilian counterparts on, on influence uh, strategies, many of whom, after graduation in a couple months, will be going to uh, geographic combatant commands. 
And what I've been trying to do is to take lessons learned from those that are among the main effort on many fronts in great power competition. Um, and that is, of course, our civil affairs professionals. So that my students, when appropriate, will play civil affairs missions as central and will reach out to civil affairs professionals for campaign planning, not for an appendix, but for the core of any strategy in great power competition. At the front lines of great power competition is civil affairs, whether it's strengthening our alliances, rebuilding our relationships, or breeding resilience uh, against future destabilizing influence from actors like the Kremlin, Beijing, and the government in Iran. So the following is a brief outline, really just a handful of places or areas where civil affairs professionals are needed to assist in the planning and execution of uh, strategies. Um, where they can offer, I think, guidance and counsel. Now, a few of these will seem like tired tropes to the civil affairs professionals that are here today, but I assure you they are not to my students uh, or to the faculty, frankly, at CIC, at NDU and DC. Uh, one, alliance building is the heart of great power competition. The heart of alliance building is trust. Trust cannot be served, uh, surged. Trust between nations can only be achieved by deep-seated trust between governments, civil society, private sectors through shared challenges, shared missions, shared experiences. We cannot spend our way out, kill our way out, drone our way out, cyber our way out, or AI our way out of great power competition. The figurative battlefield to great power uh, competition from Manila to Brasilia, or the flashpoints from Pakistan to Belarus, um, it is the duty of every national security professional, in my opinion, to at least try to build and strengthen trust whenever possible and whenever appropriate. And I find it is the civil affairs professional who can best counsel our joint planners on how to build trust past typical deployment cycles. Two, coercion, compliance, and persuasion through the threat of violence and sanctions can only take us so far. We also must look to influence. And I believe influence doesn't have to be uh, something that's undefinable, an undefinable phenomenon, if you will. Specifically, what I found helpful in the last 23 and a half years um, is the formal and legal definition within the English language, which is producing an outcome without the apparent materialization of hard power by seemingly intangible methods. So without the threat of force, without necessarily formal authority. And this is very much not just the realm of deception. Uh, but also reaching out and building relationships uh, and trust with communities, informal governance systems, and traditional legitimate power structures within civil society. The realm of influence is the realm of the very human side of national security. Again, a discipline led and planned best by seasoned civil affairs professionals, in my opinion. Three, at its core, great power competition is in fact what I like to call influence warfare. Uh, that is warfare of the mind, if you will, the limbic system, the subconscious, the frontal uh, cortex. Uh, and that is through foundational narratives, sacred values, and psychological constructs. Powers seeking to expand their own vision for the world while attempting to influence competitors and adversaries to abandon their own foundational narratives. Uh, Russia wants to undermine trust in democratic and constitutional republic values to shore up its centralized power the need for a czar-like strongman savior in Moscow. Beijing may wish to change or at least affect the international order from a rules-based and law-based 
system to that of a middle-based system. Tehran wishes to export revolution. Four, if we take to heart Dr. Sean McFate, also of NDU, his interpretation of 4th century BCE's India's Catulia, that politics is war by other means, an inverse of Clausewitz's hypothesis, uh, then we see the front line is the civil military relationships throughout the world as a central and enduring mission, not just that of a force multiplier. Perhaps great power competition can be considered as political warfare as normal or just international politics as normal. The fulcrum point being the area between civilians and the military. Five, it may behoove us to move past traditional dime military education. And so we want to look to, uh, to a number of texts from the East, from North Africa, uh, from also Latin America. An example uh, from the six uh, secret teachings, 11th century BCE China, approximately. Uh, and I quote, unorthodox and orthodox tactics are produced from an inexhaustible resources of the mind, uh, which can perhaps be interpreted as the many non-kinetic, non-traditional methods of affecting outcomes to include civil affairs missions. Uh, and from the Southern Key dynasty of the fifth century, create something from nothing. Perhaps it can inspire us to build trust and bonds from what was broken or what was never there to begin with. Then from 1999's uh, China's unrestricted warfare, and I quote, we cannot achieve objectives merely by way of ready-made mean, ready means to employ measures beyond restrictions, beyond boundaries to accomplish limited objectives. Now, I think that this is not to be confused with an all-out war or unrestricted means, but more of a call to action to seek unorthodox creative combinations of ways and means. This is not only the realm of subversion and subterfuge and sabotage, but also in applying our American values of truth, trust, and transparency. Working with the corporate world, nonprofits, USAID, USDA, and those in humanitarian aid, stabilization, development nonprofits, that have been on the ground in certain regions for decades. We're talking about building creative combinations of means beyond the formal dime approaches to strategy, and at least challenging John Gaddis's notion of means being stubbornly finite. And I quote from John Gaddis, uh, means being boots on the ground, ships in the sea, and the bodies required to fill them. I think strategy is so much more than that. Six, we have to consider the strategic scholarship once again, of North Africa, China, Japan, Vietnam, India, et cetera, as canon, uh, to at the very least learn the text our adversaries and competitors take to heart, not as unorthodox or alternative strategic thought, but as part of core curriculum. On such an approach for over two millennia, uh, or one approach, is what Hungarians call salami taktika, uh, taktika, or exacerbating divisions within an enemy society and or exacerbating divisions between an enemy and her allies. This is not some especially pernicious strategic genius of Tehran, Beijing, or the Kremlin. This is a mainstay. This is something young, uh, this is something young officers and NCOs learn as a viable mainstream strategy, something planners think about every hour of every day. So this will be attempted against, of course, the US homeland as it is today, against our allies uh, with whom our uh, civil affairs are conducting uh, missions. And so we see from a number of texts and Catulia talks about fomenting dissension between neighbors and within neighbors. Southern Key Dynasty talks about the importance of exacerbating internal disputes. 
we see uh, Berea, a Soviet, uh, Soviet um, Georgian, uh, producing a maximum of chaos in the culture. The enemy is our most important first step, he says. Our fruits are grown in chaos and distrust. Arguably, this is still a Kremlin approach today. That was a quote from 1930. According to Lenin, necessarily, thoroughly, carefully, attentively, and skillfully taking advantage of every, even the smallest fissure among the enemies of every antagonism. Uh, influence is not to create divisions on the ground, but to amplify divisions on the ground. That's according to Michael Hayden in 2017. Of course, CA is front and center in helping our allies, civil societies from being victims to this strategic approach of exacerbating divisions. Seven, influence warfare and great power competition arguably are nothing new. Of course, we're returning our focus to it. Uh, in fact, perhaps arguably, according to some archeologists and paleoanthropologists, this has been a mainstay of human conflict since about 68,000 BCE in North Central Africa. Uh, and though history may not repeat or even rhyme, we see few trust and influence campaigns today that are completely and thoroughly original. We have historical blueprints from which we can learn and importantly lessons learned from past civil affairs messages. And eight and final, um, we should not relegate or confuse, I think, influence and trust with only messaging. Often governments, as we know, are not the most trusted messengers. Instead, we must enable, leverage and empower subtly native networks and narratives whose goals happen to jive with the goals of the United States and her interests. Uh, words without networks and deeds mean little. And furthermore, we can't confuse narrative with story. Narratives involve unspoken identities, meaning, and purpose. Uh, they are best understood by listening. Something civil affairs professionals are, in my opinion, the best at in the world, better, in my opinion, than any corporate negotiator. Something joint planners and commanders can learn from. Thank you. Uh, Howard, thank you very much. So uh, over to you, David. I, I just want to say that, wow, that was such a good presentation. Uh, uh, might be better if I just cede all my time to it. Uh, so I'm not just an NDU guy, but I'm also a lifetime member of the Civil Affairs Association. It's good to see so many old friends and colleagues on this. Uh, I served in the 354 CA Brigade uh, in the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion Airborne, uh, deployed to Afghanistan and Bosnia. I was one of the guys who... Um, uh, sold the PRT concept. I gave the first briefings on PRTs in Washington. Um, and you've had three members. I'm the third member of my West Point class to speak today, Eric Wesley. Uh, then you just had Pat Antonetti, now me, and uh, we're dropping steadily in uh, quality. So I guess the last speaker of the day will be Richard Hatch, the first winner of Survivor, who uh, resigned from our class and then later served the term for tax evasion. This is my contact information. I'm gonna talk about Central Command. Um, these slides are designed for you to take away. I'm not gonna go into depth on them, but hopefully I'll stimulate some thought. So first off, if we look at the world population, you can see that the Central Command AOR is relatively small compared to Pacific Command, uh, but it is about the same size as Latin America and a little bit smaller than Africa Command. So it's a uh, significant area, but it's not the most significant in the world in terms of population. Um, 
now the question is, you know, how significant is India's population, even though it's, you know, approaching the size of China and will overtake China soon. Um, it's not as strategically significant for the United States as we have thought it is, but it's still important. And of course, civil affairs is really focusing on population centric warfare. So let's dive into population a little bit. Uh, these population pyramids, the one on the upper left hand corner shows Bahrain, where you see that you had a bulge that is in the 25 to 30 year old cadre that is now working out as it becomes more prosperous. Of course, there's this huge uh, protrusion on the male side that represents uh, migrant workers uh, that are mostly from the Indian subcontinent and Philippines. Um, and you see that's a young man's job. So they, they work their way out. So um, even though Bahrain is one of the more troubled countries in the region, um, demographically, it looks like they are not going to have a youth bulge, which typically leads to problems. Now, the bottom right-hand corner are areas that are of concern or of trouble. Uh, Egypt, Gaza, Yemen, and Jordan. And let's let's focus on Egypt. They're all similar. Ironically enough, Egypt's population looks like a pyramid. And uh, uh, the problem you have here is that all these young people are going to need jobs and they have heightened expectations. They don't just want any job. They want a good job. They don't just want any car. They want a big car. They don't just want to marry. They want to marry somebody who is like the people they see on Western TV. And so if you have a population pyramid like this, you basically have uh, almost guaranteed conflict because very few governments are going to be able to satisfy the needs of this youth bulge. And uh, these governments, which are inefficient, uh, corrupt, uh, patronage-based, are going to be especially challenged. And so civil affairs, uh, you know, looking at this, we should anticipate problems and those problems are population centric. Uh, looking at the population periods for Central Asia, the story is a little bit better, except in the most populous in these countries, Uzbekistan. And here you see a bulge, but even that bulge is declining. So um, what this would indicate is that in the countries other than Uzbekistan, uh, from a demographic perspective, you're looking more at a uh, sort of a minaret dome than a pyramid. And uh, the, the indices for civil affairs and indeed for any kind of development analysts is of stability. And then I include uh, Pakistan as well, which has a significant youth bulge, but not as bad as in Egypt and other places. Um, Afghanistan is sui generis, of course. Now let's look at employment. This chart uh, is probably the most important thing I'll show you today. So the, the left-hand axis is youth unemployment rate. The right-hand axis is the percentage of the population, uh, which are, you know, uh, of uh, percentage of population under the age of 24 years old. And basically the countries that have high youth unemployment and high youth population are places like Yemen, Sudan, Mauritania, Libya, Syria, failed states, or states that are failing or, or perpetually on the verge of failing. So Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. Saudi Arabia is of concern as one of our major security partners. Not a failing state, but certainly a state that is of great risk. And this would indicate a degree of fragility. And you see that the Arab world average is much, much worse than the world average. For unemployment, it's almost double for youth unemployment. Uh, and you know, as we know, those of us who have commanded soldiers, uh, you know, the distinction characteristic of people below the age of 21 is uh, they don't make informed decisions. You know, those are the people who tend to lead to trouble, whether it's political uh, 
uh, stirring up things or crime or whatever. So this would indicate that uh, a challenge for all of these countries. And again, uh, civil affairs is population centric warfare is uh, going to be involved in this. Now you look at education. The chart on the left deals with Egypt. And what it shows is that people who are more educated actually have problems getting employed. And that's because their expectations rise. They want a certain kind of job, not just any sort of job. The man on, on flames on the right is Mr. Bouazi, Mohamed Bouazi. He immolated himself because in spite of being a college graduate in Tunisia, he could not find a job uh, that was suitable for his uh, college skills and was selling fruit and, of course, was approached uh, for a license by a policewoman who slapped him. Uh, you know, basically, there's still argument as to whether or not she was shaking him down for a bribe. And in despair, he immolated himself and that set off the Arab Spring. So when you have this sort of uh, unemployment among people who are educated, you really have the potential for problems because the expectations are so much greater. And a government like Egypt's, which is just inefficient at best, corrupt at worst, uh, and you know you can tell stories all day long, is going to be a challenge. Now let's look at corruption. So this is a screenshot from the current Transparency International score. So um, this is based on uh, impressions rather than hard data, but it's the best thing we've got. You look at the countries in the CENTCOM AOR, redder is more corrupt and yellower is less corrupt. And what you see is um, the only countries that even approach yellow are the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. And I would argue that there um, you have corruption like we have in the United States, where it's not individuals seeking handouts, but rather you have to set aside things for certain communities or certain government entities, uh, as we do in the United States. You know, and we, we don't score perfectly because of that. But you note that uh, most of these countries are extremely corrupt. And of course, this undermines confidence in government. And of course, the aim of civil affairs in any theater is to ensure that we have competent partner governments so that our military uh, leaders can focus on military issues. So this area will be ripe for civil affairs involvement in the future. Now let's talk about some of the negative factors moving in there. The big one is really climate change. And um, this looks at water use and what is sustainable. And what you see is that countries such as Libya and Saudi Arabia um, their water is not sustainable at all. It's not being renewed. The water that they're using is basically what uh, hydrologists call fossil water that's being extracted um, uh, and is not going to be replenished uh, in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our grandchildren. Um, as the temperatures increase, the demand for water increases as well. In the past, desalination was seen as a way out of it. But what we're seeing, you know, desalination produces fresh water that gets pumped inland, but it also produces hypersalinated water, which then gets discharged into the ocean again. And in areas like the Gulf, uh, the, the Persian or Arabian Gulf, depending on who you want to offend, um, the water level and the quality of the water is being compromised. We, we're at a point where we can't desalinate our way out of this. Um, also note that there's no data for Yemen because of the war, but Yemen is in a crisis of water sustainability. Even before the war broke out, there were academic studies that said the city of Sana was going to have to be abandoned by 2024 because of a lack of water. So again, another driver of conflict. And if you're an agricultural team leader, uh, you've got your business cut out for you. Uh, I give a little bit of short shrift to the Central Asian states. So I want to point out they are not immune from this. And even absent 
global warming because of misguided Soviet era planning. What we see is the world's fourth largest body of inland water uh, is basically extinct. It's on the verge of extinction and you can go there and see ships just sitting up in the sand. Um, and not only has this body done, but the has this body uh, been put up for disaster, but the system of canals that moved waters away have, have basically compromise the climate in such a way that you get high levels of soil uh, aridity and things of that nature, which are going to lead to environmental stresses and trauma that most political scientists say will inevitably lead to conflict. And the fact that the borders were drawn by Stalin in such a way as to make these independent states difficult to govern means that the uh, potential for conflict will increase. Importing food, this focuses on uh, wheats, wheat primarily and oats. But what you can see is that most countries in the area are extremely dependent on food imports. So if there is an interruption to global trade, say by a sustained naval campaign or something, you know, imagine if two ships were blocking the Suez Canal and they got blown up, um, then you do see uh, stresses very, 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 very soon. So uh, the whole area is somewhat, uh, the whole region is fragile from that perspective. Um, now let's talk about political concepts. Uh, my friends in the Arabian Peninsula, in government of Saudi Arabia, UAE, such, uh, this chart shows for them what the Iranian strategy is. It's called the Shia Crescent. And what they see is a 30 plus year scheme to put every significant Shia population in the Middle East, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, to put that under the direct control of Iran and thus encircle and ultimately subjugate the Arab states of the region. Um, they see uh, these are Arab political cartoons that show uh, an Iranian mullah in control you know, with his octopus arms of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. And they see the mullah uh, basically replicating Hezbollah in the Ansar Allah, which we call the Houthis in Yemen. So they see a, a design there and they think that we in the West are not awake to that. Uh, so this cartoon was published uh, at the time of the original Iran deal. And what it basically shows is the United States walking away happily with uh, Iranian nuclear assurances in exchange for giving Iran the entire Middle East. Um, so we are not trusted even by our partners. Um, these three um, players, major players in the new administration are particularly mistrusted. On the left, John Kerry, the Secretary of State during the Iran deal, uh, our Arab partners uh, viewed him as concluding that deal for reasons of personal status. Um, the fact that he is in the cabinet is of concern, uh, but they console themselves that he works on climate issues. Wendy Sherman, uh, the woman in the upper right-hand corner, is, was the lead negotiator for the United States in the nuclear deal. She is now Deputy Secretary of State. That gives them great concern. But the guy who really sets them off is the man at the bottom, Rob Malley. He's the special envoy for Iraq. And when we talk about cross-cultural communications, uh, Arabs always talk to me, and I'm on Arab media this morning, I did two TV interviews this morning. Um, uh, they, they do visit the sins of the father upon the son. And uh, whenever we you know, have a few cups of coffee, they always say, you know, Rob Malley's father founded the Egyptian Communist Party. How could you let him into government? So I'm telling you these uh, little anecdotes by basically saying that the United States' room for maneuver in the political sphere is very, very limited with our partners in the region. They're very suspicious of this team. They're very suspicious of not necessarily of our motives. They don't think that we're evil, I think. Think some do, 
but they think that we're naive. And with that, I'm going to uh, welcome your questions. If this sort of thing interests you, I invite you to follow me on Twitter. I tweet articles on this from time to time, and I'll look forward to your questions. Thank you. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. We'll turn it over to uh, Dan Hampton there. All yours, Dan. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you for inviting me on this panel. Uh, when Chris first asked me part of the panel for the Civil Affairs Association, I was a bit reluctant. Uh, I'm not a former Civil Affairs officer, and I do not have a deep knowledge of the branch. And I thought about it, and you know, I'm a former foreign area officer, and there are some overlaps in the core competencies of a CA officer and a FAO. And as I thought about my experience working with Civil Affairs officers and CA teams over the years, uh, the importance of understanding the operating environment kept coming back to me. And I do have some experience working in and studying the operating environment in Africa and felt it'd be helpful to share some of that with you today. And then you as the experts can uh, see how that adapts to uh, going forward with civil affairs and relationships with the GCC and the uh, component commands as was mentioned in the introduction. So with that in mind, I thought I would take a few minutes to discuss some of the, the trends in Africa and how it affects the operating environment and then the implications for security or insecurity, if you will. And since this panel discussion is titled The Role of Civil Affairs and Regional Competition for Influence, I'll also briefly discuss external actors in the operating environment and the impact for civil affairs. So trends in Africa. Now, researchers frequently refer to four megatrends in Africa, demography, urbanization, migration, and climate. Over the next several decades, the population, population in Africa will more than double. It'll grow from 1.2 billion today to over 2.8 billion by 2060. And diving a bit deeper into that growth, urban populations will increase almost 20%, with over 55% of the continent's population living in cities. And there'll be 18 megacities, that's cities with population in excess of 10 million people. And moreover, the youth population will double. And if you look at just a small sampling of 16 to 24 year olds, they will double in little over a generation. So combine that demographic with high unemployment, underemployment, and the continued persistence of violent extremist organizations actively recruiting new members, uh, that makes for a volatile stew. But the trend I really wanna highlight uh, today is, is climate change or climate variability. Uh, David talked about it a little bit, but I think it's an important consideration for civil affairs. 
not only is it a key component of the current administration's national security strategy, but climate change is a major influencer on the operating environment in Africa. Africa is more vulnerable to climate change than any other region on the planet. Uh, temperatures and sea levels are rising, which threatens the lives and livelihoods of people living in both arid regions and coastal areas. Environmental stressors are growing more severe. Drought, desertification, floods, rising sea levels, rising ocean temperatures, weaker trade winds, reduced crop yields, they're all contributing to record levels of migration, displacement, and urbanization. Migration away from the most affected regions is causing population inflows to already fragile areas, which leads to conflict over resources, as well as changes to traditional social structures. And closely linked to rapid population growth and urbanization, displacement due to climate change creates even greater demands on those scarce resources. Research has found that climate change is a threat multiplier, exacerbating existing issues such as political instability, poverty, and unemployment. State fragility and poor governance are two of the principal circumstances that cripple communities' ability to adapt to climate change. Local and national institutions and governance mechanisms will become increasingly paramount to navigate the pressures on allocation of resources needed for basic human survival. Note I said local institutions. So that brings me to another trend that I feel is critical for civil affairs operations. And that's the increased importance of local governance in Africa. Traditionally, foreign policy, defense policy, security cooperation, even mill-to-mill -mill interaction is tied to state structures and national authorities, state-on-state -state relationships. But in Africa, there's often a significant disconnect between the center and the periphery. The governance structures that exist in the capital are sometimes irrelevant and or lack legitimacy in the outer areas. This can also apply to the defense forces, which can be seen as an extension of the regime. Uh, note that I use the phrase outer areas rather than rural areas intentionally. As mega cities develop on the continent, they're not always the capital cities. And so the role of mayors and city government structures are those that will need to be part of the social contract with the citizenry to deliver services and social support necessary for security. And that's where civil affairs officers, civil affairs needs to be working. And speaking of rural areas, uh, the role and importance of the traditional leaders cannot be overemphasized in Africa. Uh, that is a connection and relationship critical to successful civil affairs operations. And while it may seem counterintuitive, as the continent becomes more urban, that does not necessarily equate to a diminishment of the importance of village headmen or traditional leaders. Uh, what we are seeing is a continuation of the reliance on rural structures within the megacities as neighborhoods align, group, and grow around familial and geographic areas during migration to the urban areas. So they're moving those groups into the urban area and they still rely on those informal structures. And frequently these neighborhoods are low income, low employment, pervasive poverty, and there's a dearth of social services provided by the formal state structures. Uh, this is due to the rapid growth, but it's coupled with a lack of resources. Remember these new urban citizens are not paying taxes and they're already stretching an already thin and marginal infrastructure. And then you add that frequently to poor governance. So what this means is that CAO and urban terrain will become increasingly more important in Africa. Now, interestingly, I came across an article posted on the Civil Affairs Association website from uh, April 2020 titled Civil Information Management in Urban Environments. So that piece is prescient for future CAO in Africa. And finally, while not a trend, but really a need for increased awareness is, is the importance of women within the African operating environment. 
Civil affairs officers need to understand and embrace the nexus of women, peace, and security. Uh, according to a research study by the Global Counterterrorism Fund, I quote, as a core part of families and communities, women have vital contributions to make to a more expansive understanding of the local context for CVE, including violent extremism in all its forms and manifestations and its underlying factors. Women can help formulate and deliver tailored CVE responses that are more localized, inclusive, credible, resident, and therefore sustainable and effective, close quote. Okay, let me speak now for just a few minutes on the idea of strategic competition in Africa. Uh, during the last administration, the phrase great power competition took hold. And similar to the five-year-olds playing soccer, everyone in DOD ran to the ball. Uh, and this was due both to the emphasis from the top down, starting with the national defense strategy, uh, but also a pragmatic view that resources and funding would follow a shift from CT to GPC. Uh, the current administration is changing the rhetoric a bit using terms like strategic competition, geopolitical competition. But in the end, most people interpret this as competing for influence with Russia and particularly China. Again, from the perspective of civil affairs, this is really about understanding the operating environment. External actors have always been a part of the operating environment in Africa and needed to be taken into consideration. Historically, UK and France have been the dominant external actors in Africa. And I'd be remiss not to mention the role of Saudi Arabia and Wahhabism across the Maghreb and the Sahel. So true Russia and China are now increasingly becoming part of the battle space. And also increasingly is the role of non-state actors, particularly in the form of transnational organized criminal networks. So bottom line, it's a crowded battle space. And rather than become fixated on China, it's better to understand how and where these external actors have touch points into African states and structures. And, structures. and then use CA to mitigate, maybe compete, but mostly shape the environment. Which brings me back to my point about the importance of local governance. China still by and large engages in state-on-state -state relationships. If you're focused on population-centric operational variables, I would argue there's a much longer flash to bang time to influence the population if your engagement starts with the regime and formal state structures, as opposed to building networks with civil components at the local level and with the traditional informal leaders. That sounds like a civil affairs mission to me. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on this panel and share these thoughts with you. And I look forward to a further discussion on the question and answer session. Uh, thank you very much. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much. The Civil Affairs Association is calling for papers. As a green force that operates in gray zones, how should civil affairs understand competition? How would a global civil military network be a geostrategic game changer in the struggle with authoritarian powers for global dominance? To address these questions, the Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to send original papers by the deadline of September 3. The top five papers will appear in the 2021-22 Civil Affairs Issue Papers, and authors will present them virtually at the CA Symposium this fall. The top three papers, as determined by symposium participants, will receive cash prizes. For more information, visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. 
Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.